Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 14. I am Dill, your host, and what we do here is talk to people in and around the music industry about their journey through the business while touching upon some of the dollars and cents involved. Today we have a long talk with legendary producer, engineer, studio proprietor, and musician Mitch Easter, who is most widely known for producing R.E.M.'s first three efforts, as well as playing in the band Let's Active. I met up with Mitch at his home, which is just a stone's throw away from his studio called Fidelatorium, and we spoke for over two hours. So what you're about to hear is part one of our talk, which runs a little shy of an hour, and we'll post part two next week. So let's cut to the chase and get to Mitch Easter on the Rockonomics Podcast. I think lately I've been hearing a lot about the, and I used to think I knew what the word meant, but sonics. Mm. You know, that a, an album sounded great sonically. What does that, what does that mean? I mean, superficially, I guess you'd say it's high fidelity, you know. But, uh-huh. but pop music is not strict high fidelity, you know. It's a sort of created tonality that's just meant to be pleasing. Um, but, you know, you hear some records and they just sound sort of classier, I guess, for lack of a better word. Or they hold up over time. Right. Um, but when somebody's using the words, uh, like an album sounds good sonically, they're, are they not... Are they not speaking of the quality of the sound or the... Yeah, I think you're talking about the recording, you know, just the okay. sound quality of things. You know, the drums are vibrant and present and the guitars are clear and the voice sounds exciting. You know, that sort of semi-emotional but semi-rational examination of the sounds as opposed to the songs, you know. So right. you could say, yeah, I just really don't like John Cougar Mellencamp and his records sound great. I mean, it's that sort of thing, you know. And right. I think it's just, a, you know, it's an attempt to divorce the the recording quality from the performances or the band. Do you think it does it in your mind? Does it have any bearing on the way it's recorded? Like again, going yeah. back to these either home studios or more through the you know through Pro Tools versus kind of assembling a band recording. You know, it has to do with the quality of the equipment to some extent. You know, um, but again, in pop music, you know, we're we're trying to put together things that are pleasing. So some very clever people put together pleasing things on really limited equipment. And and vice versa, but all things being equal, you know the expensive equipment will sound better than the, you know humbler equipment. Mm-hmm. But again, there's so many factors, you know. But yeah, you know you put the same band, same performance in an expensive studio versus a home studio, and you would hear the difference there. Yeah, that'd be interesting to hear. Uh, so I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I believe you, but it'd be funny to do that experiment. It, it would, and it's and it's it's not all equipment. Part of it's the acoustics of the room, right? Uh, but then from there, where do you stop? Because, you know, the feng shui of the room affects the performance. Right. You know, everything is sort of interconnected with this. But, um, yeah, if you just have a expensive signal chain versus cheap signal chain, you would probably hear the difference. But cheap equipment is better than ever, you know, right, in, right. in a way. I mean, are you basically lacking, like, a depth or a richness or a – Yeah, I'd say know, that's that's – those are perfectly useful words to describe the kind of thing that's different. Okay, that's what I would uh, – Yeah. That's what I would assume. Um well, let's go back to, uh, I guess, your story. Um, I, I had read that you were involved in music at a very early age. Was that something, were your parents involved in music, or was that just a, a hobby that you took to on your own? Oh, my my parents were not playing music or anything when I was growing up, but my dad had played banjo when he was a kid with his brother. They had this duo, and they actually played on stage and stuff as kids, you know, oh, wow. but then he sort of just, you know, did other things. But my parents loved music. There was always music playing in the house. They were big the radio was always on type people, you know, mm-hmm. top 40 stations, which back then was a whole different thing than what you have now. But, um, 
you know, music was definitely seen as desirable and good. And, you know, my parents got like super excited when the Beatles came out because they thought this is better, you know, and right. of course they were right, better than a lot of what was being played. You know, it was like a sort of songwriting shift and everything, you know, and, it, and, but those times were great, you know, with Burt Bacharach's kind of pop sure. music and stuff. It was just, it was just cool, you know, um, and they loved all that. And so I was listening to it, but I didn't really play music, you know, I was just a kid, but I, um, I was in the school band, you know, whenever you do that, like seventh right. grade or something, I was terrible. What, what instrument? A trumpet. Okay. Uh, I was really not very good. And then, um, <laughs> but you know, eventually it dawned on me that I too could play electric guitar maybe. And, um, so I started doing that when I was 12. So that's when I started playing. And was that through school? No. Also, or was that no, more? No, I didn't have anything to do with school at all. You know, and, and maybe, I never thought of this before, but maybe that was part of the appeal, you know, like the lure of electric guitar and pop music and stuff was sort of, you might say, the beginning of my own life, you know, my own sense of here's what I like, you know, as opposed to like what they give you at school. You right, know? right. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it just happened. Like a friend of mine started playing guitar a little bit, a little bit before me and that was kind of thrilling and he showed me a couple of things that I could kind of sort of do, you know, and it just made me think it's funny, but I didn't think of myself as being capable of it. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, why am I not capable of it? Sure. I am. And so, you know, I got a, well, my dad, you know, knew a little bit about music, you know, about instruments from his days of playing banjo and stuff. So he saw a, an ad in the you know classifieds or something right. for some stuff and he just got it for me you know and it was a good guitar before that i tried to play terrible guitars and they were hard to play like bad I, action and stuff yeah like, you know in those days a cheap guitar was truly yeah, impossible I to play you know cheap guitars now are great <laughs> but back then they were like you know you sort of had to have hands of steel to fret these things you know and, I know exactly. and, I, and if you don't know what to expect it just seems like this is impossible yeah. you know but he got me this good guitar which was an old gibson 330 and it was like, you know, 10,000 times easier to play. And I took some lessons and they got me going. That's great. And then you, um, I mean, did you fall into the usual thing, find some guys that, you know, you could play with in, in high school and that kind of Yeah, develops? but this was, this was way before high school, you know. I, was, I think I was 12. And then right away I was in, in a band, you know, which was thrilling, you know, to play with other people. I mean, especially when you haven't done it before with amps and stuff sure it's so loud and so amazing sounding you know yeah the first time you get together and it's actually like hey I can, and i remember yeah like happen. hearing like drums you know like cymbals and stuff were like unbelievable i mean <laughs> i now know that they were killing me but they were exciting you know all that stuff was very exciting and it was obviously if you're not too good it's nice to be supported by other people mm -hmm. and it's great to start when you're young enough to not exactly know if you're any good or not but you're just going for it so that's what happened. So I immediately was playing in a band, and that was... Was that the Rittenhouse? No, Rittenhouse? that was way before that. That's this first band, you know. I don't even remember it having a name exactly, but then it sort of morphed into a real band that was called the Loyal Opposition. And back then, I had no idea that that was a term for the Republican Party. I don't think any of us knew that. <laughs> I don't think I, I knew that now. I think we just thought it sounded like a band name, you know. So that was our, our, our name when we finally played in public. And he played out to school dances. And yeah, the first thing we played for was a, uh, there was a dance academy in Winston-Salem that was like, you know, um, it was a private thing run by this fabulous old lady, you know, who was from like the, the days of elegant social 
stuff. Right. She thought that, you know, all children should know how to dance properly. And so they encouraged, you know, parents were sort of given some kind of spiel. You should sign your kids up for this thing because it'll make them, you know, slightly civilized and they'll know something, you know. So a lot of kids did that. And um, so, you know, you dance to this kind of music that none of us would ever be caught dead listening to if we had a choice. <laughs> but then she let everybody have like a party, like maybe a Christmas party where they could listen to that nonsense that they actually liked, which was rock bands you know so that was our first show it was very exciting we played for the dance kids you know and playing covers i assume mm-hmm. so what were the what, what, what were the bands that were kind of uh you know speaking to you guys at that time well i mean this is how long ago it was the thing that everybody wanted us to do at the party which we didn't know was incense and peppermints by the strawberry alarm clock okay. which maybe you don't know but yeah. it's a very very important psychedelic song it was also <laughs> a top 40 hit um uh, I could go on about this. It's funny, but it's something like that. Like, I don't know the song, but it sounds like it's not at your base. Is it, was it hard to play? I mean, is that a hard, well, you know, a hard song to we, learn? We probably for, could have hacked through it in, you know, in a kid kind of way. But, I mean, I just didn't know it. I just wasn't as hip as the kids. I don't know what I was thinking about, but somehow I didn't know that song. Um, or maybe I did, but I, it, it, it is a great production, and it might have struck me at the time as, like, impossible. Like, for me, it was... Um, as a guitar player, as a proposed guitar player, mm-hmm. the Monkees were a bit more inspiring than the Beatles because they seemed like maybe I could play those songs. Right, more you accessible. know, because the by the time I was actually playing, the Beatles were making you know Strawberry Fields and stuff, which it was hard to even hear that as guitars. Yeah, and, you know, and um, you know, whereas something like She by the Monkees is a guitar song, you know. So uh, I think Incense and Peppermints was just trippy enough for me to quite. Does not totally process it, even though I didn't like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> and then I was surprised to learn. Uh, yeah, I mentioned that. Uh, so eventually, you segue into. I think when you're around 15 years old, you segued into uh, the Rittenhouse Square. Is that the name of the band? Uh, there was a band called Rittenhouse Square, but in between was, in some ways, a more important. But well, I don't know. In between was the imperturbable Teutonic Griffin, which was. <laughs> the first band where I was like the guitar player as opposed to being with somebody else. And that was just another sort of cover band of the day. Um, and and then that morphed into this band called Sacred Irony, which was a very important band to my development because by then we were kind of good. Mm-hmm. And we played a whole lot and um, you know had big amps and um, actually sounded good. Are you still in your early teens at this point? Yeah. And are, is there any... Um monetary things going on in terms of like like you said you have big amps are you guys just slowly you know building all this getting all this equipment in yeah you know um the the economy right on through the 80s was so completely different from from the way it is now i can't quite even grasp it you know like you play now and you're lucky to make 35 dollars sometimes and at the same club in the 80s you would have been paid 500 dollars at least what's happened you know right. i mean i'm saying with equal people being there you know and and this seems to be just true throughout so many things but um it's not like we were making a lot of money but we would make kind of a few hundred bucks you know playing back then which when you, it's 1970 is sure. kind of real money it's a lot of money so were you guys taking that money and putting it back into the band so to speak with, uh, with no, we weren't or? that organized we were just kids living with our okay. parents you know that whole thing of like a band checking account and stuff and we never did anything right. like that we were just we just played. Okay. I was just curious how you, you know, like you said, um, you guys were playing with large amps and stuff like that. I just. You could kind of get them back then, you know, mm-hmm. again, the, the, the relative price of things. I mean, they were expensive, but they weren't um, out of reach. So at what point were you playing in a band and thinking, let's record this or like, let's get. 
almost yeah. immediately. I mean, in fact, the first because I always loved recorded music. I loved the whole thing of grasping that records were not the same thing as standing there and playing, and that you could do more and they could sound more interesting. You know, I figured that out sort of, and um, so I always loved that. And um, anything I could ever read about recording, you know, which was very little, uh, was was always super interesting to me. It seemed like a magic world. But, um, you know, my friend and I were taken to see A Hard Day's Night when it came out at mm-hmm. the drive-in theater in Winston-Salem, which is the only place it showed because none of the theater operators thought that it was worthy of actually being inside a building. So at the <laughs> drive-in, they showed it for like one night or something, and it was so exciting. You know, my parents drove us up there, and there were all these cars. You know, it was like nice weather, and all these cars were already there with kids just like sitting on top of the cars, and it was like – a convocation of the kids and it was exciting you know and um it was it, and and the movie was great and my friend and I came back and immediately tried to record something that night just singing and we were so horrible that even we realized that we, we were terrible but within a year or so we had both really tried to learn how to play you know and um so you know that that kind of inspiration was just like super powerful and i forget what the question was uh so did I. <laughs> no, it was like, when did you, when did you first want oh, to Oh, yeah, uh, so the first pursue... thing I ever tried to do was, was record. And then, uh, right. you know, that, that was a failure, but we knew we'd return to it. And so about, particularly in that band, Sacred Irony, um, we, we started having songwriters in the band. And I was really for that because I, I was the youngest one in the band, but I thought there's kind of no point in playing covers. You yeah. know, if you're going to be for real, you've got to have your own thing. You know, we've got to really go for this. And we actually did record in a pro studio a couple of times. And, um, you know, we, we eventually only did original songs. And then after a probably only a year of that, it seemed like a long time, but I bet it wasn't. There was, there was kind of a mutiny in the band against doing that because they felt like that was keeping them out of some of the places they wanted to play because they were like bigger teenagers, you know, and they wanted to play it more getting into the blunt world of bars, you know, and right, stuff. Right, right. And so I was I was sort of heartbroken by that and left the band over over my, you know, highfalutin principles about doing your own stuff so you could record and make records, which is the point. You right. know, that's how I always saw it. What was your what was your first impression of the studio? Like just the process and the I mean, did uh, well, you guys he, to, did you guys record live or did you do four tracks or We uh, the first thing we did was um it was kind of a scam, but it was kind of a great scam. Um, you know, the thing of booking agencies was always a thing with bands, and they would typically have a lot of groups, and then they would just try to stick them wherever they could, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of cool, and looking back at it, sort of crass, but whatever, you know, we just what we wanted to do. So we, there was an audition at the studio in Greensboro for this booking agency, you know, attention bands, we're looking for new bands. So we went over there and did this thing, you know, we, we talked to them. And uh, part of the deal was, which was a scam, was that you had to make a professional demo in the professional recording studio, which is not a bad idea, but it was clearly a tie-in, you know. Right. And um, but the studio was was great, and I mean, it it really was a nice studio. To this day, I marvel at how it even got built and why. I'm still it's it's a research project, um, but it was a nice place. And um, doing that thing was was live. We just did a, a professionally recorded live performance and it, it turned out great you know so we were really happy about that um and then we went back on our own just to do more stuff and we got fancier that first recording was and this sounds like it was the 50s or something but mm-hmm. it was i think it was 1970 um it was you know mono live you right know? and uh 
And then I think we went back and recorded on four tracks, you know, so we could like overdub a little bit, you know. Right. Um, so, <laughs> what would you walk out with that day? Um, Did they press you like those acetates, or they had full record cutting facilities? They could make acetates, and they could make eight track cartridges, and they could do I, love, I don't know what all they could love do. eight tracks. I love but it that was story. amazing. They had that machine. <laughs> this was a nice place. They had real equipment, uh, but I think we probably. Oh, and we got a reel-to-reel tape. That's that's. Okay. I still have that. Was that like a half inch back? Quarter inch. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember the the record clubs back then used to have like you can get reel-to-reel, you can mm-hmm. get LP, you can get. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a few track. Uh, uh, record club tapes. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess when I was you know researching, I was I was amazed at how early you got started in recording because it just seems like you know. Back in the early seventies, or even at your age, you know, being a teenager, like that, you immediately, you know, went to that very quickly. I thought it was great. It was just very exciting. You know, the what you could do. I just had an affinity for the equipment. Like, look at that thing. You know, the, the stuff was expensive. You know, it was. Um, th- there was absolutely no crossover really with like anything consumer about that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and um, therefore it it looked different. It looked really real you know it was like military equipment almost yeah <laughs> so what what happened in the this is around this is early 70s yeah and then you opened uh drive-in in 1980 is that correct yeah what so what happened in the decade uh what happened in the 70s for you <laughs> um well you know, i was in college and i was in some more bands and stuff and i kept trying to write songs um you know in the um i guess in the 11th grade or 12th grade or some sometime around in there uh, my friend chris Damey got a TAC 2340, which was, uh, as far as I know, the first sort of um, consumer machine you could buy that you could overdub on because it was four tracks, but it had a sync mode, which was on an analog tape machine, what you need to be able to overdub. And we knew that was the answer, you know. And he was able to get one. And we put, but I had the basement, so it was in my basement, and he and I worked down there. Like, we, we were in a band. And we were so obsessed with the recording that the band just sort of faded away. Like the other guys were just not very interested in that, and we were totally interested in that. So um, the band sort of fizzled out, and we didn't even notice almost right. because we were so engrossed in that. And I always like to say that I learned everything I knew then, which is kind of true. You know, right. and working with very limited equipment, but the ability to overdub, we just got a feel for this in a way that was different. And a feel for how you play when you're recording that can be different from what you do on stage. I mean, it makes you just sort of hear yourself better, really. Right. Um, And, you know, um, trying to write songs and thinking about how to put them together, you know, and and all that, as opposed to just strumming away and making a bunch of noise, we really started learning about the notion of assembling stuff, like, arrangement-wise, you know. Right. Um, So that was really, really instructive and really fun. And then... uh, I just kept on doing. Chris and I both kept on doing that on and through college and stuff, and but also forming bands. But, but by then the bands would always record. You know, we'd always do something on the four tracks, and they got better. You know, it was like we got better sounds with the same equipment because we just figured something out. Right. And so you know, but mainly when I was in college, I was thinking like, oh no, I'm going to have to get a job <laughs> if I haven't got a record deal. You know, and what am I going to do? Um, that sounded terrible. You know, and I thought, well. Recording, that's a job, you know, but it's also music and I could record myself. And, you know, a lot of people have this same idea. Well, almost, I bet most well, recording people have played music at some point. You know? Right. What were you studying in college? Did it have anything to do with... Well, ultimately it did. I just went as a liberal arts major 
and my dad, who was incredibly supportive of the music stuff, but was also a sensible person, mm-hmm. would come up with these recommendations for things sometimes that would just make my blood run cold, even though he meant really well. Like right. one of my, the one that I loved to cite was um, tax attorney. <laughs> um, to that, to this day, that just, just terrifies <laughs> me. I mean, it's not like that's not worthy work, but it sounds like oh my yeah, god, yeah. good. So you know, he but he he worked for. Um, Western Electric, which was part of AT&T, and he saw the writing on the wall of AT&T being broken up, which did happen, and these tax attorneys were already all over the place doing all this stuff and getting paid a lot of money. So he thought, you could do something like that and make a lot of money. You could still play guitar, you know, I'm thinking, probably not, you know. Um, So the studio thing struck me as like something I could maybe really do and aim it at sort of my kind of clientele and, you know, not due to my incredible vision or anything but i was right. i was right you know by the time the studio opened there was a particular segment that was looking for the kind of place that i had which was different from a mainstream studio you know and uh and it worked but part of that was just good timing you know other things had to happen to make that work right uh, but it but that's what i wound up doing it after college now just prior to opening that did you do a stint in new york well, I'm, all my friends moved to New York, and I did too. For the band or for mm, Just for my life. You know, my, it's like my, my dad had worked in New York a whole lot. I was very familiar with New York City. Okay. And he had an apartment near uh, Washington Square Park for most of the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Right. Um, so you had a place to stay? <laughs> yes, and I went to That's New York like, a lot, you know, and it was great when our band started playing in, in town. We could stay there, you know, which was huge. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. I mean, we the first show we played, I mean, he was like three blocks from CBGB, so we could just walk over there with our stuff that was yeah, great yeah. you know but um I, but anyway yeah you know the idea was to do whatever you do in new york you know find the awesome band and i actually was going to start the studio up there but i chickened out I, I started thinking this is more intense here you know things cost more it's just more it's more intense and sure. so the potential is you can make more money too but the downside could be that the studio would just completely consume my ever waking hour to try to pull it off you know and sure. I, I still felt young enough like nah, i still want to be in my stupid band, you know, and I, so I, I abandoned that idea, but I did live there for a little while. Um, yeah, I'm always interested when you hear just like, oh, they, you know, moved to New York. It's like, I, I lived in New York and it's like, it's a major expense. So like <laughs> saying that your dad had an apartment, that makes a whole lot of sense. Cause a lot of times you're like, listen, you can't just go there and, you know, grab a hotel or whatever. It may Not be for- exactly. Although back then it was free compared to what it is. I mean, it was free. People I knew in Hoboken were paying like $100 or something for these nice places, you know, yeah. if you just lived in Hoboken. It was crazy, you know. It lasted <laughs> until it just ended all at once. You know? So how did you, um, when driving started, what did it start with? Like, I, I know it was your parents' house. Were they actually living in that house? Yeah. Well, my what they did is that my dad was getting, He, I think he realized he was probably going to try to retire early which you know those corporate guys could do back then and right. come out okay uh so he he a guy from that he knew through his work it was selling this sort of comfy kind of you know 50s suburban squire kind of pads you know it was really nice house just on the edge of winston-salem with a lot of land and stuff it was really a nice place and it was an amazing price and he, he bought that and the idea is he was going to retire there you know but before but he was still working a couple more years my dad my mom went ahead and moved in there so the first Two or three years of the studio, my mom was the only one that lived there, although he came back on the weekend a lot. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, it was one of these, like, really long 50s houses with the garage at one end, and it just was, like, in a straight line, you know? So, so a ranch house? Yeah, and it was built really well. It was, like, a concrete block house, so it was, like, 
you couldn't even hear the bands at the other end of the house. And That's good. They, they didn't care. They thought it was great. <laughs> so, um, you know, I did that because when I came back from New York, it was slightly tail between my legs feeling, even though I felt like I wanted to do something that I could handle. Right. Um, so I set up in the garage just to set up the equipment and just start working and just get a feel for it, which was cool with them and, and made it possible because I didn't have any overhead really, you know, and that was fantastic. So I could charge not much money and get rolling. Right. Um, um, another question just really about the, you know, the, the rockonomics of it all is, you know, what did you start with in terms of equipment? Like you were, you mentioned the four track. I know that was years and years ago, but were you slowly amassing equipment through, through the years? Uh, no, I kind of, um, I bought everything all at once that I okay. needed to make a big leap upwards. And, uh, again, my, I mean, you know, I'm really big on the whole notion of like, you have to get help in the world. You know, everybody loves the, the mythology of self-made person and some people really are, but it's so great when you have support, even sure. if it doesn't ever come to pass, just knowing people are there. My parents are always like that with me. And I think trying to set up my future, they, for some reason, I don't even know why they did this, but probably set up my future. They, when I was in college, they, they found, I wasn't even looking for it. They found this little weird homemade log cabin that somebody had made out of railroad ties. And it was really cool. It was built, built by these hippies, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they bought it for me and it, you know, it didn't cost anything, but it was like a little weird shelter that I lived in when I was in college. And when I got out of college, I sold it for a profit um, because Chapel Hill has always been a hot real estate market. Sure. And even a place like that, you can sell. You yeah. Know? So I sold that and I took every penny of the money and bought recording equipment with it. And okay. I had really, really, really been thinking about this stuff. So I bought pretty well, you know, I bought stuff that I still have most of it. You know, it was good stuff. But my vision in college, such as it was, was that, like, you know, if I buy old stuff that's still okay, maybe I can do it that way. Because, uh, I mean, these professional tape machines, like a like a 24-track machine, would cost as much as some houses back then. I mean, they were expensive, yeah, yeah. you know. So um, I bought a machine that was a 16-track machine that was, like, six years old, which back then in the sort of heyday of what they call pro audio, like, studio was really hot in those years, and they were making a lot of money. A six-year-old machine would be something you get rid of, you know. Even though it worked, you know, it was a right. hot, hot scene, you know. Um, so I got this machine, and um, it was, you know, and I got a two-track machine that was sort of a company, the same manufacturer, same era, um, top quality, very expensive in their day, and expensive then too, but a lot less than they cost new. So I had those things, and I got a pretty humble console, but it's big enough, and you know, a few good microphones and. Not a whole lot else than just started with that. So it wasn't a four track, it was a 16 track, and it was a two inch 16 track, which was the pro format. Okay. So that sort of, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be like, we're kind of for real. You know, even if we're in a garage, we're kind of for real. But even at that time, you were familiar with all that stuff? Like, mm. there was no learning curve for you? In, in no, make, I mean, we learned, you, you know, kind of in, in the basement, we learned everything. You know, sure. the big expensive tape machines do the same thing as the cheap ones. They're just nicer. You know? Right. So it seems that. Relatively quickly, um, you know, you you formed this relationship with REM, and I, I don't want to skip anything, but it's it seems like only if you opened in eighty, Chronic Town was in nineteen October eighty one, something like that. They were they were a fairly early band to come in. Yeah. Okay, so there's no, you know, you did um, that did happen quickly. I guess my point. Yeah, is. yeah. I mean, right away I did. What's cool is the first session we did in there did in there came out as a. EP on Twin Tone, which was a big Minneapolis indie label right, back right. then, and um, so that was cool. You know, we were we were kind of on the map immediately, and um, you know, I think uh, how did that all happen? Like, how did how did a 
Minneapolis label. When I lived in New York, I met these people in this band and uh, recorded them. And they're still friends, you know? Yeah. Uh, And that was my first thing. It came out pretty well, you know? And it it made sense at the time and all that kind of thing, you know? Like, it's not a record that I'm embarrassed to listen to now. Sure. It sounds okay. And I think that was like in the summer, you know, like maybe around the July or something. And then I think REM came in maybe the next April. So, you know, with, with within the first the first year was the I had recorded them. Okay. And all this stuff came about through friends of friends and word of mouth and stuff like that. You know, it was all very humble and and cozy, but that's still how the world works. Right. You know? And but at, at the same time too, I just realized just looking at my notes, at the same time you're you're starting Let's Active. Is that correct? Like that's all yeah. I don't know whether you're starting, but it's it's all happening. Well, I mean, I always time. wanted to not not you know, I, I wanted to always be in bands. Yeah. So I had moved back from New York. I didn't have any of my old connections anymore. Like a lot of the people that I had grown up playing with were off doing their thing and stuff. And I realized I kind of had to start fresh. But it was kind of cool, you know. I felt like I was still vaguely young enough to do that. Like I could think about music in terms of what was happening right then because I liked what was happening right then. Right. And I could think about playing with people that I'd never played with before, which was a whole new ball game for me because every band up to then had just been – you know, one bunch of people just kind of oozing into the next. We already knew them or whatever, you know, and this was going to be like a fresh start, but it made sense. And the whole music scene then felt like that, you know, the the hip music scene felt like everything is new. I mean, it was sort of nonsense. It's still just music, but it felt new. It was a real sort of break, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, we started that band, and I guess it got going. It sort of lumbered into life maybe in the summer of 81, but by the the first show, I think it was in November of 81. Um, so not, not too long after the studio started. Right. And at what point did you guys sign? You guys also signed to IRS, correct? Yeah. That's active? Yeah. I don't know when that was. 83, maybe. So. Okay. So a couple of years after. Yeah. Um, so Chronic Town, um, that was recorded one weekend? Um, it, it, I don't know. It, it, <laughs> I, I think it took more than a weekend. Okay. Um, but, I mean, none of those records took any time at all. Maybe right. maybe four or five days. But I know we did we did another session for that record because that song, Wolves Lower on there, which is a really, really yep. great song, they they came back and re-recorded it because our original version was incredibly fast. I heard it the other day, as a matter right. of fact, and it was hilarious. I mean, it's exactly the same, but it's like played by robots. You know, you can't right, believe right, how fast it is. It's great though in its own way everything was fast then you know? yeah but this is really fast and i don't know who it was that thought that maybe it's too fast or maybe they just thought they could do it better but we did that song again so it wasn't all one session you know well it's funny I, when i when i read some of the old um reviews how much the word punk comes up well they were very punky back yeah. then if you saw them live even if, and you can find these like youtube things sure. of them playing like the pier and raleigh and around that time and you can see how they were kind of a punk band and it was the punk scene i mean everybody called it the punk scene basically if you weren't you know playing skinner or you know radio rock you were considered a punk you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and but they their sensibility was that they didn't really write aggressively punk songs but there was it was a factor then yeah it's interesting um so did did things kind of were they taking off i mean were you always busy were you always Mm -hmm. um you know it was perfect actually because i was able to play with the band quite a bit and record quite a bit and it seems like that my years for a while there were pretty much split in half time-wise 
which was great. So your goals at the time were to keep that going. And then along with the band, like even, even saying that you signed to IRS in like 83, that seems like you've got two paths of, you know, two paths you're pursuing. Was there ever a, were you ever like, you know, one of these is going to have to take a backseat to the other or prioritize either one of them or as long as I could do it, I didn't care. And you know, it was great because the studio was a, decent young person income for me and I was able to kind of support the band activities with that because the sure. band bands never make any money but although we made better money back then than anybody seems to make now unless they're really famous it was right. still the kind of thing where if you were on a record label back then you often would get things like tour support and stuff which of course then you have to pay back I mean they don't you know they take it out of any sales you have right and we never had to do that because I could just pay for things. But, I mean, basically it paid for itself. Everything just kind of worked for a while there. Right. But um, I'm not the sensible kind of person that thinks of a five-year plan, you know, or any of that nonsense at all. I'm, I, It's like I like playing, and we, we're playing, hooray, and I like recording and recording, hooray, and that's about it. That's as much thought as I wanted to give it. Because I, I think you can make all kinds of pronouncements, but whatever happens will just be whatever happens, and you're part of the sort of big picture of life, you know. And, right. I was pretty happy with it, and I just sort of wanted to keep going with it, so that was it. Was there any um, struggle in in pricing yourself as a studio? <laughs> like, no. I guess I guess I ask because th- th- there comes a point when I guess um, when REM comes back to do Murmur, and you guys move to Reflection Studios, they're a bigger band, mm. you know. And you're you're a self made person, for, for, you know, for lack of a better description. You know, is there are you throwing out a number and hoping they're going to, I mean, I guess when this becomes a record company involved, are you throwing out a number and hope it sticks or what kind of, how did kinda, that kind of, I mean, you know, if you, if you do this recording stuff, you're, uh, and you were doing it back then, you, you could say, and this would be true in the fifties too. You were maybe a pioneer of the gig economy, as they say now, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have a salary. You don't have anything you can count on. Yeah. You're freelancing. So you just try to do what you can do. Um, and you know, Don Dixon who worked on murmur with me, you know, and I both had that sort of, we like to be good guys, you know. We we weren't interested in like that sort of Phil Spector kind of vibe of like I'm going to be a millionaire, I'm going to be huge, I want to be. We didn't right. think that way, you know. Sure, we were more humble. <laughs> and also, um, we came out of playing in bands. We didn't want to be mean to bands, you know. Yeah. Um, that, must, that, that's th- mu- that must give you a good <clears throat> perspective to sell yourself. Yeah, but I mean. Even the idea of selling yourself was sort of like embarrassing to even think right. about, you know. But and and I mean, I, I know what you're saying. Um, but what you really have to have is a reputation, and both of us had a good reputation, you know. And bands did approach us, and we were able to stay busy. Um, so it kind of took care of itself, right? Um, I never had anything like a phone number, you know, or a business card, or a you know, stationary. Right. <laughs> In fact, I was almost superstitious about all that. I thought I have to be completely like just this guy you know about, you know, right. and that's how it's going to work. Like I had this fear that the minute I printed up my 2000 business cards right. that I would hand out 10 of them and that would be it, you know? Um, so I never did it the way you're supposed to, you know, and sure. that almost became our angle. And, you know, those were sort of the anti years anyway. I mean, it was a little much in a way, you know, the, the attitude of, anti-classic rock and anti-this and anti-that, but it is also where it got some of its power, you know. The kids like to think, yeah, we hate all that stuff, we like this, you know. That's how social stuff works, and and so, you know, we knew that. But anyway, it worked great for our sort of uh, temperament to be able to be anti-salespeople, you know. Okay. Needless to say, we we needed money, and um, we did, you know, 
stuff really cheap. You sure. know? And later when there was – because once the sort of punk and then new wave and then whatever the hell it was, music scene sort of became more commercial, then it became – you know, the kind of money that was being spent to make records became just like anything else, which is to say more, you know. Yeah. And we were able, able to make more money sometimes. Uh-huh. But, you know, I never really pursued that. I mean, I mainly just did like indie bands, and so I didn't do very many truly expensive records. Right. Are you ever in a position where you're, you know, as I, as I use the word sell, but it's almost, that was the wrong word, but you have to kind of pitch your vision to a band mm. if they're considering you those scenarios exist or did they exist for you where it's like you know if you were no, to, if I'm you were saying. to take me as your producer no, i'm really I, shy you know i really am i can't do that it okay. like, kills me to do that actually but even even but you i'm saying it as not even selling yourself but like kind of uh articulating your vision for a particular band like oh i can talk i have no problem talking but i'm not gonna be like trying to convince people i, th- I right. think like i think i could be a, a okay salesperson in a fairly chill environment you know <laughs> which is to say i couldn't be the kind of salesperson that like my dad actually had a job when he was a little kid standing on the street and practically grabbing people and dragging them into this pawn shop you know <laughs> so there's that kind of salesmanship yeah. you know i couldn't do that but i've always thought i could work at like a bmw motorcycle shop where yeah. the bikes sell themselves. And sure. I could say, yeah, this is fantastic, isn't it? We agree. This is really fantastic. Right. You probably need one of these. I'd probably be really good at that. And that's kind of the way this music stuff would work. Thank goodness. Right. You know, I was, I mean, these things are great until they become an albatross, you know, but it's, and, and in my case, it was a bit of an albatross. But if you're associated with things that people like, they're just going to think for, and they can be wrong about this. They're going to think that some of that magic is going to rub off on them and that you're the, you know, the medium for that. That's kind of how it worked. And um, it was a little bit of a worry in a way because some bands, you know, would clearly love REM and were not going to sound like them and should not try to sound like them and never will sound like them. And you don't want to, like, just take their money and have them be disappointed because you didn't turn them into REM. I mean, some people are incredibly misguided about stuff like that. Right. And it goes wrong, you know, even with people that ought to know better because much later – when I was when I had a manager for the producing stuff, the guy was saying that he, he he couldn't believe it either. The labels would say to him, "Oh yeah, we love Mitch, but we don't want that REM sound," and that's just so offensive and so dumb. <laughs> but that's how people think. Yeah. Like it's like, dude, you could pay me a million dollars to try to make this band sound like REM, and they won't. And right. why do you think that that's even possible? You know, but people think that way, and they they have a sort of cartoony kind of simple sure. vision about how all this works, which, like I say, is basically good because if you have any kind of name recognition, you're halfway there. Right. You know, but it can work against you if they don't like the thing you're associated with, even right. if you're really capable of it. Like I've got a lot of stuff that we used at REM Records, and if people use that stuff now it just, will just make them happy you know and that's mm-hmm. enough really they just kind of want i mean that's fun right and there's nothing wrong with that and i would be the exact same way if i got to play this oh yeah you know paul mccartney sang in this microphone i would think that was incredibly fantastic in a weird cosmic way sure, yeah. so a lot of it is just that and that's totally fun and, and great and everything but where it it was only irritating to me with record companies it's like you ought to know better than to say something like that it's really <laughs> stupid you know um, so, you know, that's, that was a surprise, but then the whole thing with record companies was a surprise because as I met more and more of the people, it's like, yeah, I know, you know, something because you've sold a lot of records through your company, but the things you're saying to me strike me as so much less cool 
than the dorky kids in my junior high school would say. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Right. I, I couldn't believe some of the things these people said is like, this is a good idea. And it's like, no, it's not. Everybody hates that. Why do you think that we should do that? You are so, and I still would say that to them to this day. And maybe some of those same people would laugh and go, yeah, like, I don't know why we thought that. But, you know, I mean, to some extent, selling records and making records are completely and utterly different. And I do respect that, you know, the artistic vision which we all celebrate, can be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, the record companies are like the sensible parents, you know. But when I met that world, they didn't come across as like sensible parents as much as weird, privileged kids. They reminded right. me of like the kids in school that were sort of cocky and were also dorks and didn't know it. Well, and that's so the, mean for me to say, but that was right. my impression of the industry as a whole. It was weird. Right. It's, well, it's the guy who speaks... Like he has knowledge, but he does not have the background to to take a stand on. And I think, yeah, I think it's kind of that. And the, the other thing that was a bit painful about all that was that, like, if a record did well, they would they were so quick to pat themselves on the back for their pioneering vision, <laughs> even though I knew a lot of times they were fighting the band tooth and nail, and it really just succeeded because the people at large liked the, the record that the label didn't have much belief in. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was... But, you know, that's just humans for you. I think it's right. all just – it just gets magnified with show business, you know. Right. I think show business is great because it's so vivid, but it's full of characters who can be ridiculous, right. despicable, uh, weird savants. You know, it sort of emphasizes the it stuff. It's a bit of, you might say um, – conceptual inbreeding going on that, that, that drives show business you know the genes sort of pile up in one direction and sometimes that's mm -hmm. useful sometimes it's not now as a producer engineer you you have to wear and this kind of plays off what you've been saying you have to wear many hats one of those which you know i, I saw your credit as being a buffer like you were a buffer between irs and rem during probably all their all, every time you were from but uh, specifically for reckoning um do you, I don't know, I can't say, do you enjoy that aspect of... No, I like everybody to agree. I want to say to the band, let's do this, and I want them to go, yeah, let's do that. I don't want to fight, you know, I don't want to say, no, you really ought to do that, you know. No, no, seriously, believe me. You know, I don't really particularly enjoy that. I would like for everybody to agree, and I'd like for the record company to hear the work in progress and go, you guys are geniuses, yeah. You know, I mean, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. the, I don't like arguing with people, and um, but I will, you know. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, uh, it would be wrong to characterize the relationship with IRS as, as contentious. They were they were trying to be cool. Mm -hmm. I don't think they totally got REM. I right. think they would tell you they did, but I don't think they did. And they had some pretty decent acts on their label at the time that weren't so f – I mean, it wasn't like REM was brought in to be like this new way oh, no. out there – you know, piece to their puzzle. No, I mean, my take on it, and again, I mean, I, if any IRS people hear this and are offended, I will apologize in <laughs> advance. I liked the people there. Sure. They were all nice, and they were, you know, and it was a young label. I mean, it was young people, and I'm sure mm -hmm. they, you know, were learning all kinds of things. But, you know, it was it was kind of put together by Miles Copeland, who started this thing with, uh, you know, in America, he was licensing easy-to-get, cheap, punk masters that he could re-release in America because he saw that there was going to be a market for it in America. So the first stuff that IRS put out back when they were called the International Record Syndicate were things like reissues of Buzzcocks records and stuff, okay. which was great, you know. And then they started the, the L.A. sort of office here, and they started developing, you know, American bands. Um, 
but it, 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 for lack of a better term, they had a very Southern California centric view. Really, you know, I think what they really liked were kind of funny California bands. You know, mm-hmm. they were kind of funny and fun. You know, and I think that REMs they they knew they were good, but their their sort of southernness and not to make this like some Faulkner story, but they were right. a little different than those SoCal men, sure. you know, in their whole thought process. They were artists, you know, and they were kind of protective and stuff in a way. You know, a lot of, a lot of kids that are in bands just want to play, and it's like, you want to give us some money? You want yeah. us to sing that song? Sure, we'll do it. You know, R.E.M. were very, very contrary, and that was part of their strength, you know. It's <laughs> like, we like this, and we don't like that, and you're not going to make fools of us. We, You know, I mean, famously... They hated opening for the police, which most bands would kill for that spot. They would right. think that was just okay. We're on our way, and they they thought this is pointless. Nobody's listening to us. You know, we need to play where people are going to listen to us. So that was kind of forward looking, but also probably looked sort of snooty and wrong headed to some people. Sure. Um, but in the end, the band was sort of right. Now that, that could have flopped, but if but it didn't because they were good and they had an audience. You know, but mm-hmm. anyway, that's the kind of thing that. That, that was in the background. But, I mean, basically, IRS was excited about their new band, REM, you know, and they just wanted them to succeed. I think when they heard what we did, they didn't totally love it. But then the records went on to do really well. Yeah. So, I mean, they couldn't argue with that. I mean, cri- they were very critically acclaimed, maybe slow sales, I think, in the long run. They became well, see, that's the thing. It's large like, sales. But Well, you know, uh, the first track we did that f- for IRS was the, that song, Pilgrimage. Um, Chronic Town had been recorded before they were signed. So that was the first thing we did where anybody was listening outside of the band's circle. And it was kind of an audition track, you know, because they wanted them to record with somebody they had heard of, not these nobodies, you know. Um, and they apparently did not like that track, Pilgrimage, which I still think is a great track. And I think history has proven us <laughs> right because it's, it's a great track, you know. Um, you know, and we did... Um, you know, it was funny. Like the they came by the studio. A couple of the guys from the stu- from the label came by the studio during Murmur, and they were kind of grumpy and they didn't like what they heard. and And then I think they were disappointed that the record immediately only sold about two hundred thousand or two hundred forty thousand, whereas the Go Go's had just sold a million or whatever. But it's like, yeah. yeah, well, you know. And but you know, they were. I mean, they were just in business. They just wanted to sell a lot of records. Yeah. And it's amazing to think now that a debut record by an unknown band does 200,000 and that's considered bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, because there are people now who are quite famous, whose actual sales are almost non-existent because it's so fucked up now, you know, but, um, they, I don't, I, I think again, because they were so local to LA, I don't think they realized how much power that band had like everywhere they went. I mean, they, they realized it in short order. Right. But and so when when a couple of the guys from the label came by during reckoning, it was a totally different vibe. It was like, "Great guys, keep it up, okay, see ya," you know, because they had more faith because they they were seeing how that band was on the rise. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about Let's Active because at the same time, you know, as, as we're just dissecting kind of the relationship of REM and the record company, you've got your own band and your own relationship with the record company. Was that, uh, I guess, was that a positive experience for the time? I mean, you were signed to them for. Uh, where's my, I mean, probably six or seven years, I think. It started off good and sort of went sour, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, you can't blame them for losing interest in you and don't sell a lot of records. We never sold anything like REM did, and I never thought we would um, because we weren't as appealing as them, you know. They they had like a great singer, you know. So even if you kind of, you know, people always love 
great singers are very distinctive singers and uh, I'm a terrible singer, you know? I, so I was more like a really aware of the fact that we were like an indie band and they were a band mm-hmm. that could, it was hard to know what they could do. They obviously got really big and I'm not saying that we were comparing ourselves to them very much at all, but I mean, in the scheme of things, the label needs to make money on you and we sold okay, but we just right. didn't sell like that, you know? Um, but we didn't cost them anything either because we made cheap records. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, cause I recorded them and they didn't cost much to make. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, what, what were some of the highlights of that era in terms of, I guess, I, I guess my, this question is about like a, a lot of things are happening for you. I know you were, you were in Rolling Stone at that time. There's a picture of you and Martha Quinn, but in that era, you know, there's MTV, there's probably venues you've always wanted to play. There's always acts you wanted to tour with. What, what sticks out in your mind as being like really Well, finally just getting to do it. You know, I've been playing since I was 12, and I, but being from here, you don't know what to do. You know, you, you, bands come from Hollywood or they come from New York, but yeah. they don't come from North Carolina, not back then, you know. And uh, nobody quite knew how to make the leap. And, you know, the, for us, the path was by way of those Athens bands, not R.E.M., but... Pylon, Pylon and, and B-52s right. who went to New York and did great before anybody else. And I don't quite know how they did it, but the New York people love them. And they and that whole thing of like bands from the South. Yeah, we like bands from the South got in the air. There were a few key people in New York that, that were really helpful to them and, and us. I was thinking about Ruth Polsky this morning who ran Danceteria. And I had met her when I lived in New York and I was not even through playing. I just met her through other bands and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was a really nice person and she was hip you know and she um so i moved back down here and a year or so later we had let's active and it's like okay we need to go play in new york and i called up ruth and i said can we play at dance and she's like sure is 500 dollars okay and that was amazing you know that was how good it was back then <laughs> yeah. for us it was so friendly and agreeable you know and uh uh so that was that was where the dream was coming true you know i was going from playing around here which was fun you know up through age 15 or so after which you think uh this is mm, yeah what's we got to do something more what do we do we don't know you know um to be able to make that leap and then get right into that sort of you know it's like you jump in the river and go with the flow is what it felt like because and, and a lot of it had to do with that punk scene opening up a whole new thing of live music like live music sort of came back to life mm-hmm. you know and around here we started getting clubs that were cool too but um, so you could play locally and you could play nationally at the clubs that understood what your band was doing. In fact, they wanted your band, you know. And we were perfectly situated in the timeline for that, you know. Mm-hmm. So even though we were just like a dinky little band, we were pretty popular. We played all over the country like a lot. And that's just all I wanted to do. Yeah. I just thought this is this makes all that guitar stuff make sense. This is what I wanted to do with it play in front of people this will sound like a stupid question but are you are you going on van tours or are you going on bus tours or are you van like how how did it okay um well you know we got a van and we toured in the van and then we just kept doing that when we got bigger we had two vans we had one that had the equipment and we had a couple of people helping us and then we rode in the other van but i don't like bus tours it's claustrophobic i know it's what everybody does i know they make sense but i really much prefer the van tour where you stay in hotels mm-hmm. as opposed okay. to that driving okay. overnight thing you know? yeah that's interesting i never um, thought of it that way but we didn't have the budget for a bus tour but even if we did we wouldn't have done it i don't think because when you have you know it's the 80s right so if you're not playing it's about thrift stores you know and if you have a van you can go to every thrift store and pawn shop in town because you're in control of your location you know which is really nice mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you guys ever play uh, Europe? Ever tour, tour Europe? We played in England and a couple of shows in Scotland. It was weird. We 
should have played in Europe, and that's where I fault some of our uh, booking mm-hmm. people. They did never seem to like like uh, we. Uh, Later, we had a manager that actually turned down shows because they thought that wouldn't be right for you. And it's like, what? You know, we were we wanted to play anything we could play, <laughs> sure. and we did. We were not afraid of hecklers. You know, we were we were bold touring people, and, and we liked to tour. And um, so I, I do lament that we didn't ever have any European tours. We um, and I don't quite know why, but we we did quite a bit in England, um, and. Uh, and, and mainly with Echo and the Money Man, we did a really long oh, wow. tour with them. Awesome. And that was when we were there the most. Any other names like that you can throw out that you guys supported or played with or supported you? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, we we had opening slots, some with some really funny bands, like we opened for that band Modern English at some weird college in Pennsylvania where they hated us and loved them, you know, because <laughs> they were on MTV, you know, and stuff. You know, we did some dumb shows. I mean, uh, I mean R.E.M. were right. Opening is really kind of dire sometimes right it was always great when we opened for rem because they were our friends you know and um we did that quite a bit actually early on but um i don't know we didn't do that much opening you know mm-hmm. i mean there probably were some other big bands like i mean the probably the absolute most horrible opening slot we ever did was opening for oingo boingo <laughs> in their home territory of orange county california which right. was just hostile you know it was awful you know but we just laughed at stuff like that. You know? Right. I'm surprised because I feel like you guys were sharing the same radio waves, you know, or. You yeah, know. but people suck, you know, like people are great and they also suck. Yeah. It's like it, it was already starting to shape up where it's like, we like them and who are you? Fuck you. And like, that's what the Oingo Boingo thing was like. It was just like nasty kids <laughs> so in funny. a nasty community who had a bad attitude. You know, I would, that's what I still, that just sucked. That was stupid, you know, but it was gross people. And they the thing that they did there was they threw coins at us, which oh, hurt. That's the worst. You know, they, they were nasty people. And I think they would be nasty people if they were at a sports event, you know, and for some reason that band had a bunch of nasty people that liked them at least, in Orange County. Right. Um, most of the opening stuff was okay because we would play with bands that, like you say, would, you would think a sort of compatible-ish band would have a compatible-ish audience, but that was not always the case. Mm-hmm. It depended on how cool the audience was totally. Like that school in in Pennsylvania was funny because we were interviewed by like the hip kid who was like the college journalist, you know. Mm-hmm. And she said, they're going to hate you. They don't know who you are. It's, you're going to hate it. Because we were thinking, this is a nice place. Oh, it's a nice venue. It's going to be fun. No, they're going to hate you. And the show was kind of okay. And then, you know, like a couple of weeks after we played, I get in the mail a clipping from the school paper from this girl saying, see, and of course it's like, well, we were totally boring. All our songs sounded amazing. It sounded exactly the same, yawn, you know. And then, of course, everything Modern English did was like super junior. Yeah. No, it wasn't Modern English. It was Flock of Seagulls. Oh, oh my gosh. That's even better. Yes. Given the, you know, what, yes, what they're known Flock for. Yes, Flock of Seagulls. And, and, of course, they were perfectly nice, but the audience, sure. you know, it, was, it was kind of a dumb audience is what I'm saying. I mean, I hate to say that, but they just, they knew the, MT, the big MTV band. <laughs> Uh, the modern English, I, I always think of in the same breath because they were sort of equally like inescapable on MTV. Yeah. And I think they're all in the same company. And I don't know if we played with them or if I just met them. I remember meeting them later, and that singer guy, Modern English, was the nicest guy. He was really nice. But uh, I, th- I think actually now we never played with them. Sorry, okay. I'm mixing up my '80s bands. Were you were you meeting any of your heroes at this time, or um, just as you were you know coming up? Well, I mean, the one of the more curious things was towards the end of Let's Active, we um, we came to the attention of Robert Plant, and he just loved us. And um, 
So I talked to him on the phone. I was given his number by way of a couple of people. It's like, Robert wants to talk to you. So I called him up, which was really bizarre. Talked to him for like two hours and then met him in person a couple of times after that. And he was always like so flattering and also a really interesting guy. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a curious. Is that like mid-80s still? It was like Early late 80s by then, I guess. Okay. Like 86, Trying to think where he was seven. in his career. He was still doing pretty well, I know. His he was doing first... fine. He was making, you know, the solo records that did pretty well. And I think yeah. the new one that he was actually still making around the time we met him was that one called Now and Zen. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the one where he he thought he was he sampling was, his own. He was going to go ahead Zeppelin. and sample Led Zeppelin because it's like, well, everybody else is doing it. I'm going to yeah. do it too, you know. And he did it kind of as a slightly tongue-in-cheek version of it. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't met, like, millions and millions of uh, – Mega stars, but I guess we did meet some people. I mean, but he's he's certainly the one that comes to mind. Okay, this is where we'll end part one of our talk with Mitch Easter. We'll post part two where we get into more of his recording credits, how he was affected when the music industry imploded, and much much more. So tune in next Tuesday for part two of the Rockonomics Podcast with Mitch Easter. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can write us at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That should wrap it up for now. So until next week, good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.